Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's the Keith Walsh Podcast. It's essential like your breakfast. It will get you up and going, there's the things you didn't know. Yeah, it's the Keith Walsh Podcast. It's the Keith Walsh Podcast. Give you energy like buck fast. And if your head's in a pickle or you're looking for a giggle, it's the Keith Walsh Podcast. Yeah, there we have it. It is Friday, Friday evening, and this is a very special Friday evening podcast. Normally, I put my podcasts out on uh, a Monday, two on a Monday, one on a Thursday. It's quite, it's, you know, it's breakneck speed at this stage. Um, but hey, what else should I be doing? Do you know what I mean? Uh, I am at the moment holed up in my room upstairs in Megaff in Newbridge in a housing estate just on the outskirts of Newbridge. It's a leafy, leafy housing estate, I suppose. Uh, it's currently pacing rain. It's been a miserable day. I think that's the rain we're getting now is supposed to be the snow. So uh, we were supposed to get a bit of snow today and all we're getting is a load of rain. The difference in temperature is the difference in life, isn't it? Because a few degrees colder and we would be just looking outside going, oh my God, it's so beautiful. It's December, it's nearly Christmas. The shops are back open. You can kind of go for a, you can go for a meal, uh, sort of. Uh, you can go for a meal, support your local restaurant. Um, just we'd be like, oh my God, it would be the most wonderful Friday ever. And because it's a few degrees warmer, it's the shittest Friday ever. But not the shittest Friday ever, but it's pretty manky and uh, plenty of traffic around. Because you kind of forget about the traffic in your town, how bad it is during a lockdown. <laughs> like I'm saying that as if it happens all the time. But uh, I had forgotten about the traffic in my town, Newbridge, and how bad it can get. And then I ventured out today and, oh my God... It's very bad. Very bad indeed. So just stay at home. Make podcasts. That's what I'm doing. Um, although I do have to go and try try and get my hair cut today. And more importantly, bring my young fella to get his hair cut. Because he is... He's at that age, you know what I mean? He's basically wearing a hat all the time because of his hair. And that is, that's on me, guys. That's on me. Uh, so what have I been doing since I talked to you last? Well, I put up a podcast last night with John Creedon. Uh, loved it. Listen back to that um, at my leisure. And I've done very little else. What did I do today? I delivered some. My wife has a business called Nearly Sisters. You should check them out. They've got a website, nearlysisters.ie. So I had to deliver some stuff for her, candles to a shop up until there. And um, that's pretty much it. I went to the gym. Yeah, so my legs are very sore. And if they're sore today, I won't be able to walk down the stairs tomorrow. Um, I did... I was hoping to get out for a walk with the dog just to loosen the old, get get the old lactic acid moving, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen. It's too miserable. I'm doing this instead, so there you go. It's better for you, isn't it? Now, my guest today, as you will have learned from, because you clicked on it, the link, and I'll have said who, who the guest was, is is Holly Cairns. Uh, a little bit, a bit, a bit, a bit, a little bit about Holly. Uh, Holly, also known as Holly McKeever Cairns, is an Irish Social Democrat politician who has been a TD for Cork Southwest since the 2020 general election. 
She was a member of Cork County Council for the Bantry Local Electrical Area. Electrical? Electrical. That's difficult to say. Electrical. No, it's not. Uh, 2019 to 2020. Born on a farm in West Cork. Uh, she is a farmer working in the family business. And as she mentions, uh, the family business called Brown Envelope Seeds, which was called Brown Envelope Seeds before she became a politician. But uh, so that makes it even funnier. Uh, she's a fir- first class honours uh, in organic horticulture from University College Cork. Her mother, Madeleine McKeever, contested the 2004 Skibbereen Town Council election as a Green Party candidate. And uh, she's a noted environmental activist in West Cork. Uh, sorry, she, she is noted as an environmental activist in West Cork, the people and the place. Um, and uh, she, she's, yeah, there's, you can read that book if you want to read more about her, to be honest with you. Because, uh, you know, I don't want to tell you what's, I don't want to ruin the ending for you. Uh, there was a bit on Wikipedia where, let me just, her, you know the way that they have the little sidebar on Wikipedia with the information. Uh, a picture of Holly, she's a TD. Um, her... She assumed office February 2020 constituency, Cork Southwest. Personal details, born Holly, uh, 4th of November 1999, um, Cork, Ireland, nationality, Irish, uh, political party, social democrats, alma mater, University College, Cork. And when I was, something has been removed here. So when I was uh, <laughs> researching that, obviously I go straight to Wikipedia first and then that brings me down a rabbit hole but uh, uh, there was something else about um, a significant other which I mentioned in the chat and she rightly told me that uh, it was rude to ask about her her personal life so we didn't go there we just didn't go there and that piece of information is gone from Wikipedia now so there you go Um, (laughs) I don't know what's going on there either way um, the reason I wanted to talk about it was because there was mention of her running against maybe her, maybe there were boyfriend, girlfriend partners then. Um, and that was why I brought it up, but she didn't want to talk about it. Fine by me. It's not one of those podcasts where I'm like, no, you will talk about this thing that you don't want to talk about, but I want to talk about it. It's a, it's a free country, free podcast. Talk about whatever you want or not talk about whatever you want. In the end, she spoke about a lot of things. Uh, one of the things I, I actually mentioned at the start was a book called, well, I didn't mention the book, but I talked about the sacking of Baltimore. And you can read about it in the book, The Stolen Village. Uh, Baltimore and the Barbary Pirates by Des Ekin. In 1631, this is very, infor- <laughs> very information, very interesting. In 1631, Barbary pirates kidnapped the inhabitants of Baltimore, West Cork, in a daring nighttime raid. Only two of them ever returned. Here is the story of their kidnap, sale in the slave markets of Algiers, and the political fallout from the attack. It's called The Stolen Village, and it's by Des Ekin. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. It's, it's E-K-I-N, so it's either Ekin or Ekin. And it's a book that I have somewhere, but my wife might have put it. Um, so there you go. So that's another thing I thought might be worth mentioning. Um, we, she was very uh, honest about everything. Her time in the council, in Bantry, her time so far as a TD, where she's taken on the likes of the Greyhound Board. Not necessarily the Greyhound Board, just one individual. Let's not tar them all with the same brush. Um, she's had a go a pop at dairy farmers. She has, and when I say a pop, I don't mean like, you know, rightly so. Um, 
she knows what we need to do as a country farming wise uh, to make this a better country and she makes some very interesting uh, points and some eye-opening points and uh, startling facts points about how we might deal with the flooding in this country and it just seems bizarre I think I use the word bizarre a lot uh, in this podcast it's the podcast I use the word bizarre more often than any other podcast um, but I learned an awful lot. We went on to talk about um, people who share images of other people who aren't allowed and don't have the rights to share those images, be they naked, nude in images or otherwise. Um, and how if you do share images that aren't yours to share, you could end up spending seven years in prison. So that's something to think about. Um, and uh, yeah, just taking on the establishment was generally the theme of the chat it was very enjoyable i enjoyed it so much and because it's so topical i decided to put it up today as a special friday podcast it is episode 35 and it is me chatting to holly kearns so holly you're in you're just saying you're in baltimore the most fascinating thing i know about baltimore is the story of the sacking of baltimore i think it is where some barbary pirates came and took some of the people from Baltimore as slaves. Is this something that I, that, that I read in a, is this, did this actually happen? Do you know what? This actually happened. This? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not actually in Baltimore, but it's very close, um, you know, across the mouth of the river there. I'm in, in Turkhead, uh, which is a gorgeous little unknown peninsula in West Cork. So you're far enough away in case the pirates come back. True. <laughs> a safe house. It's a very interesting story. If anybody listening wants to check it out, there's a book on it as well. The Barber, I think it's the Barbary Pirates and the Sacking of Baltimore, or something like that. Uh, I'll, I'll give the details in the outro. Holly, thanks very much for talking to me today. Are you keeping well? Very good, thank you, and thanks for having me on. Uh, just let's let's try and get to know the the person behind the politician first. Do you uh, do you exercise? Do you like to walk, or do you like the gym, or what? What, or do you meditate, or what's your poison? I used to like the gym, but then I got a dog and my dog is quite literally the love of my life. Um, so the gym was very quickly replaced with dog walks um, as much as possible. And it's probably the hardest thing about being a politician for me, <laughs> which is so, you know, life is good when this is your biggest complaint. But um, being away from my dog all week in Dublin is <laughs> probably the thing I find most challenging. Oh, um. I, I just have to mention this because you said the thing thing you miss the most is on Wikipedia your 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 other half is described as your domestic partner. Is that is that correct? Is that, I'm not I, sure what a domestic partner is. I don't know. It just says it says domestic partner, and uh, it is that that's what it says on Wikipedia. So I don't know how. Maybe that's how you describe your other half these days. Do you do you have another half? Are you in a relationship? Is this a is just the dog. I think you can probably think of a better question to ask a TD than about her personal relationships. Oh, very good. Excellent. <laughs> Great. Uh, perfect. And uh, books, do you read? Um, I do. And more recently, I suppose, with all of the travel, I'm about a four and a half hour commute to Leinster House, sometimes five, depending on traffic. So I've had to kind of take to audio books instead. Um, but I do have a keen interest in literature. My dad, um, is a publisher and he uh, is the founder of the West Cork Literary Festival in Bantry, um, which is one of West Cork's best uh, festivals that we're all very proud of. Um, 
so yeah I've always had an interest in it that's for sure <laughs> so what have you liked recently um I started recently uh Fintan O'Toole's Meanwhile Back at the Ranch um, it's in relation to the, the beef barons and you know the kind of the goings-on with the meat industry Ireland and kind of the effect that's had on um rural Ireland in relation to you know the kind of decimation of small farms and um you know most farmers now uh lose money on their on their dry stock or or um, any kind of beef production really so I grew up in a small farm here and uh, I suppose it's an interesting thing when you look at the transformation of Irish agriculture in in my lifetime I was reared on the income of 16 dairy cows and that would be nowhere near viable now so a lot of those small farms have you know transitioned into into beef and they have now too become unviable so um, I have a keen interest in agriculture, obviously from growing up on a farm, um, I've worked in the industry. We've diversified here a lot. We now uh, operate in vegetable seed production predominantly. Um, so we do about 250 varieties of vegetable, herb and grain seed. Ironically, our business is called Brown Envelope Seeds, but um, that was uh, before I went into politics. <laughs> um, a coincidence. And uh, yeah, we do have uh, cattle on the farm still. We do um, beef, but you know, we'd barely break even in beef production. And I think um, one of, you know, one of my motivations going into politics was agriculture policy and how much that's failing farmers in small communities like the one I live in. So um, reading and researching all at the same time now. Have you ever looked into the viability of hemp or cannabis plant? I haven't. Um, it turns out the seed production is, is a great way to keep a small farm viable. Um, we're actually the only uh, vegetable seed company in Ireland. Um, there's a charity in Clare as well, but I think that's an interesting point as well in that, you know, now because of this kind of model of agriculture that we've been consistently moving towards, um, you know, we essentially have a monocrop in Ireland. So we see it as a green country, but essentially it's a green desert. Um, the entire country is planted in Italian ryegrass um, to, to, for cattle to graze. And we have no diversity. And Ireland better than any country knows what happens when we have a monocrop and we don't have good uh, genetic diversity because of the famine. Um, so one kind of, you know, for example, pest or pathogen in, in that scenario left us in a very big predicament and relying on one form of um, food production, again, now with, you know, the main focus being dairy and very much big dairy, you need to have a very big farm for it to be viable, leaves us in a very vulnerable position once again. Yeah, like what if there was another blight, a blight on the on the grass? On the ryegrass. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it has a lot of knock-on effects as well. So when you imagine um, Italian ryegrass as a, as a crop, it has a very small root system. Um, and, you know, we've seen, you know, with climate change and everything that's going on in West Cork, we're, we're already feeling the impacts of that. We're flooded time and time again, loads of villages, towns, communities seriously affected by floods. And the way that we approach that as a, as a state is we do piecemeal interventions, massive concrete infrastructure to prevent individual areas flooding. We have to look at the broader landscape and how we manage our broader landscape really comes down to agriculture. And the fact that any deep roots in our soil have been removed and replaced with a very, very small root system means that the, the, the soil can't actually hold water anymore. And so when water comes down from mountains or higher uh, land areas, it all just uh, seeps straight through. So it's been detrimental um, in so many ways and very short-sighted, I think. And why is this news not getting out? Why do we not know about this? Like, why, why do we 
put in these stopgap uh, solutions and we nobody's really like is there a fear of talking and like i know that you're very honest about things that you find out and but you seem to have annoyed like people involved in dairy farming and we'll get onto the greyhound board in a little while but like <laughs> like there's this level of honesty there's a tendency i suppose when you become a td to uh, you know toe the line i suppose you're in a better position because you're in opposition um but there's a great honesty there um are you yeah are you afraid do you love it do you love the fight do you i mean it, it, i don't understand why more people aren't more honest it's baffling it seems like it's a much a strange, better thing. To, it's much better way to be. It's a strange um, reality in Irish politics, and I remember before going into politics myself being so frustrated with the approach that politicians tend to take, and it's kind of this um, ambition to to please everybody and to ensure you know you don't want to upset anybody because in order to get reelected, I suppose that's not a favourable thing to do, but like as an onlooker, I remember finding that so frustrating and thinking I'd rather um, a politician representing me who said what needs to be said rather than what they presume everybody wants to hear. I always find it really frustrating. I remember particularly in relation to things like absolutely the greyhound industry, like when where there's no common sense, I just don't understand it. And there's just a big lobby behind something um, in relation to, you know, um, information still in the department of the Taoiseach about you know, people who've suffered the worst kind of institutional abuse in Ireland and still no justice being provided there. I remember finding that massively frustrating and I still don't understand why things like that haven't happened. But it was interesting, you know, I was kind of catapulted into politics. I never really had a moment of deciding I want to go into politics, I want to be a politician. It, it, sometimes, it just happens to you, I think, sometimes. And, you know, I started off in Cork County Council and, you know, having no experience or not being from a political family, I would often ask questions and I remember thinking, never don't ask a question for fear of sounding stupid. You know, you have to learn as you go along, learn on the job. I never claimed to be a political expert. And then oftentimes the question I asked, it turned out, were ones that you're just kind of not supposed not to supposed ask. To I, don't, you know, I don't know how to explain that. And then it became that there was this kind of narrative of you know, uh, new councillor Holly Cairns thorn in the side of Cork County Council or the, the chief executive of Cork County Council. And like, honestly, that was never my intention. I was thinking, I'm good. You know, I am outspoken and I, 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 you know, I do have strong opinions on, on some things. Um, but for example, in Cork County Council, one of the, the clashes that I really had was um, we would arrive into a council meeting and we would be presented with huge documents. Like they could be really thick and, um you know, it could be about a town development or, you know, something really important, the sale of land from the council, no information on, you know, how it was valued, who it's been sold to, what was the process. And I'd say, oh, sorry, can we like postpone this vote until the next meeting? Because I haven't had time to read this, you know, unless you can speed read 500 pages in a very short space of time, it's not possible to make an informed decision. And you're very much elected to make informed decisions on behalf of the people who elected you. That physically wasn't possible. And I would just be ignored time and time again. So eventually I brought forward a motion to the council to request that we receive all relevant documents for meetings, at least three clear working days beforehand to allow us to do our job, which is to make informed decisions. And like, needless to say, no councillor was going to object to that because it would sound ridiculous. So I got support in the chamber and then the, the council would say, now we're going to um, refer that to this committee um, I would say, oh, great, can I attend? No, you're not allowed to attend. And then in the notes 
from those meetings that you get like in random email with loads of other things. If you sift through all of the notes, I find it saying, and um, we decided actually, you know, just to paraphrase, not to bother with that. Um, so there's things like this. And I started a podcast called Inside the Chamber, which was, you know, I sought to inform people of how local government does and sometimes doesn't work. Um, and I was met with huge hostility from um, senior staff on the council. Um, I was told that I was, you know, disrespecting the staff and um, insinuating that the council weren't doing a good job. Um, really inappropriately, privately given out to, uh, like I was a kind of bold child, and even I don't think you should speak to bold children like that, you know. Um, and it became this narrative. Holly is this, you know, thorn in the side, troublemaker, um, you know, always causing waves. And it was like, no, actually, like all I wanted in that scenario was to be able to read the documents that I was voting on. So it's, it kind of baffles me that questions like that hadn't been asked before I arrived on the council. And then, you know, I was straight into general election then, so still haven't been addressed. So today, as far as I'm aware, on Cork County Council, people vote and make decisions on stuff they have absolutely no information on. Um, kind of staggering but it's bizarre it's bizarre did you did any of the so so obviously they, they wanted to tell you off and say look this is not how you do things you're, you're obviously silly you don't understand how the, the council works um did any of it seep into your personal life or did, did you ever like none of it was not obviously you had your own podcast then but you didn't ever feel threatened or worried in in, in your day-to-day life there was no no reason for concern like that way um, I wouldn't have felt threatened or worried just, you know, you know, in the shop or at home or something like that. But like, I suppose there's those moments like that when um, a senior member of the council, council staff um, brought me into a private room and really gave me a telling off for a long period of time for um, publicising my honest experiences at the council. And I do remember briefly feeling, you know, when somebody kind of shouts at you or you have those moments of like, you know, you're kind of a bit taken aback, but then being like, because, you know, he was telling me that I was inappropriate and all these different things. And I remember just, but then really having this moment of like, the only inappropriate thing about this situation is this conversation. You know, you really have to remind yourself of just, you know, what's reason, what's fair. And um, I think I do quite a good job of not letting it affect me personally. Um, but of but course, you, you know, when you... Sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you as... No. Um, as a member of the Social Democrats, uh, and were you a member of the Social Democrats then? In the in in yeah yeah, so you're not part of you know the the you know you weren't one of the with one of the big parties, the more traditional big parties. Um, like you didn't find yourself. I know this is a, a huge leap, but you didn't find yourself getting like you know parking tickets or you know uh, stopped you know the guards checking your your tax more often or you know the tax man coming in having a look at your affairs or there was nothing weird like that went on or anything there was nothing weird like that Keith I'm so sorry do you mind if I just quickly let my dog out I'm yeah, so course. sorry yeah, yeah, she's cool. scratching have, at the door I have like... my, my dog Charlie at my feet here so and he might start barking any moment so work away it's all uh, it's all good Holly has now gone to let the dog out and I'm getting to look at the pictures on the wall behind uh that's cool so so nothing nothing weird like that it was just because I, I mean I do worry no, that nothing yeah. nothing weird like that but I do think it's important to note that so 
when I would do that and speak out about certain things, and, and like that, I was the only social democrat in Cork County Council at the time, the first one elected in Cork County. Um, so you, you're on your own and, you know, in between different decision making processes, people might go to their party rooms and liaise and whatever. And, and I wouldn't have had that. I was just, you know, kind of figuring it out as I went along. But there would be like other, say, county councillors would say things to me like, don't be getting on the wrong side of these people. You'll never get anything done for your constituents. And it's like, well, what's the culture here then? You, you kind of you have to suck up to, to these people to get stuff done, you know, and it's kind of... Um, very unproductive environment and it's it's really not what people think it's all about when you vote for somebody to go and represent you that they're going to try and you know get on side with the the different members of the council and, and go along with things that they say in order to get something for your constituency or for your local electoral area so it's very problematic and you know I certainly didn't get like you know lots of parking fines or anything like that but I was sort of told that my behavior would result in me not being able to get things done um, in my area, you know, so that's kind of, a, I suppose, it's a, it's a threat and I don't know if it's an accurate one. It's a shot across the bow. It's very disconcerting, isn't it? You know, as for a young woman to be like just coming in, you know, and and I'm not saying innocently, innocently in a bad way. I'm saying like genuinely just, you know, eager, uh, trying to do the right thing. Also trying to learn what the right thing is and get all the information possible so you can make the right decision. And literally being told, look, just keep your head down. Don't say nothing. Just do what I do and everything will be grand. You know, yeah. that's 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 worrying, isn't it? That that yeah. that could be happening. Like I have spoken to Fiona McLaughlin Healy on this podcast as well. And she would have similar stories of trying to she was trying to get council meetings available to watch online, which was a, seemed to be a big, you know, I, I don't know. They don't like that. I don't know what they're worried about. Like, you know, that, you know, perverts might start looking in and, you know, checking out the, the older me- me- male members of, of the, of the council and getting, getting off, getting their, their weird kicks. But yeah, but I think thankfully she has said to me recently that because of COVID, it seems that that's ha- going to have to happen because they're all going to go online anyway. And it sort of speeded up the process. One of the good things to come out of COVID. Um, that's it. If there's more transparency, these things wouldn't happen. And a big part of that is if the public can watch the meetings and, I know our councillors, Social Democrat councillors across the country, um, table motions to to make their council meetings public quite regularly, and it's often often met with resistance. And obviously, then you've you've taken your your attitude, you know, you're you're just you're clearly you've clearly got an attitude, and you've taken it to the doll. Um, and I loved your I love it's just the honesty of it, like. When somebody says something, and I think there are institutions like the Greyhound Board, like the Meet People, like maybe the Vintners, you know, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but that aren't used to someone calling them out. And like the ridiculousness of uh, Wayne McCarthy, Greyhound Board member, calling you an ignorant little girl. I mean, such a stupid thing to do uh, to call a member of the doll an elected member of our parliament and and i love the way you called it out it was it was brilliant what was your I, like i mean i don't even do i even need to ask you what your thought, pro- thought process was it was just like i'm just going to call this out that's it in a way i think the thought process is interesting so yeah i mean it's incredible that it happened and i mean in, in hindsight what an own goal <laughs> on his part but like um and you know not a good look for the greyhound board or for the industry but the thought process was initially like when I saw it, like 
ignore. You know, I'm, I'm quite used to getting, um, you know, very gendered comments and stuff. And like all politicians get abuse online. That is, you know, male and female. Um, but obviously then if you're a female representative, you get the more gendered stuff as well. So, you know, my initial reaction was just ignore it. But when a female LTD liked the comments and then had to apologise, I couldn't avoid dealing with it. Um, because I was, you know, getting so many calls from the media, like, what's your reaction to this Phoenix LTD apologising for liking a comment that called you an ignorant little girl? And then I was kind of, you know, the, there was a thought process in that it's like, yeah, I don't want to have to deal with this. And no women in Ireland want to have to deal with this. Um, you know, I didn't want to have to use my speaking time in, it, in the doll. But the reality is, if we don't call it out, then we, you know, we facilitate it kind of, we, we allow it to happen and, and we kind of unintentionally say, we allow this to happen again. And we send a kind of message to the next generation of just ignore it. And that's not helpful. Like it's 2020, a member of a state board referred to an elected woman as an ignorant little girl. You know, so I was thinking as much as I'd like to ignore it and don't want to have to address it, like no women want to have to address this. We wish we were past it. Um, I felt like particularly as the only female TD in all of Cork City and County, only female TD or senator in all of Cork City and County, biggest county in Ireland. You know, this kind of, I, I should address this. Um, so I was asked about it on the plinth um, on Tuesday morning or whatever, and I just said, you know, we need to address this kind of everyday sexism. We need to say that it's not acceptable. Um, and then we, were, we had, you know, a sitting on the increase in funding for the industry again. There was like, you know, short slots for statements. So I decided to take the opportunity to put on the dull record that a member of a state board referred to an, an elected woman in that way. And he also um, referred to my comments about the greyhound racing industry as waffle. So I also wanted to put on the dull record that none of my comments were waffle. They were all based on fact and research, much of which came from the Irish Greyhound Board itself. And for a member of the board to not actually challenge me on any of the information I put forward in our Social Democrats motion to, to not increase funding by 2.4 million in the middle of a global pandemic to the greyhound racing industry, a loss-making industry that kills 6,000 dogs a year. He only addressed what he thinks of my personality and just pointed out my gender. So, you know, that in itself is ridiculous too. So I took the opportunity to invite that member of the Irish Greyhound Board to have a debate with me about the industry, about the serious animal welfare concerns in that industry, um, you know, the, there was a report found, an RTE documentary aired, that found that the industry uh, breeds 6,000 dogs annually to support the industry, and then has to kill 6,000 of those dogs for not running fast enough. So there's serious animal welfare concerns. And even if you put the animal welfare concerns aside for a second, not that I believe we should, um, it's a loss-making industry. Um, between 2019 and 2022, it's predicted to lose 30 million. Um, and like that, with the, the, the recent um, additional funding of 2.4 million, the total allocation for this loss-making, very cruel, very problematic industry that only 16% of the population believe should be funded by the state will have a total allocation of 19.2 million. And we're hearing things like, just as a newly elected rep, like I mentioned earlier, my constituency keeps flooding. Um, you know, these communities are you know, businesses closing down and then flooding and they can't get insurance because, you know, insurance is a joke and, you know, there's no, there isn't enough refuge spaces for victims of domestic violence. And we know that's risen a lot during the pandemic. There isn't 
adequate uh, disability support services. And we hear, oh, there isn't the funding, there isn't the funding. However, they have 19.2 million for a loss-making industry that kills 6,000 dogs a year. And, you know, this member of the Greyhound Board didn't want to address any of those concerns. He just wanted to say that what I said was waffle, despite the fact that it clearly wasn't, and that I was an ignorant little girl. Just, I mean, it's unbelievable. It's ridiculous. It's truly bizarre. How does it, what's, I mean, I don't understand the lobbying system or I, I, how does an organization like that get so much money when clearly, as you said, what only 16% of the population actually have enough interest in it to, to, to bother voting for it or saying that they like it or whatever. Why does lobbying. it happen? Yeah. Why does it happen? So like I had a really interesting situation re- recently with lobbying, um, which kind of epitomized it for me a little bit. And obviously this wouldn't be a hard and fast version of every scenario or anything like that. But there was um, uh, when when Michael Creed was the Minister for Agriculture, he brought in a new law whereby um, vessels over a certain size couldn't um, pair troll within the six mile nautical zone of the coast. Um, and that was to prevent overfishing and the, and the depletion of stocks inshore. Um, and, you know, that was passed. And then uh, it was appealed in court by uh, some members of the, the fishing community and they won and the, the law was overturned. Now, it was overturned on a technicality because in the process of implementing this new legislation, they hadn't consulted properly with the community. So it wasn't that the, the law wasn't a good one or a necessary one. It was just like a technicality that they won in court. So then these pair trawlers were back. In, in the coastal areas, pair trawling. So it's like two vessels alongside each other going along and like with very thin nets sweeping up all of the stocks inshore. Now, the kind of sustainable fishing that we need to be supporting is inshore fishermen and women. And, um, you know, th- their boats are like inshore boats that collect small amounts, very sustainable amounts. Um, and since that law was overturned, the, the bigger boats who can fish uh, further out um, have, have started going back into the, the inshore zones and taking all of the stocks out. So it depletes them massively, massively for, you know, the, the, the rest of the fishing community. And it has a, a very negative effect on our fish stocks and, you know, the ecosystems and all of the things there. So I came out against this and said, you know, for one, we need to, to reintroduce the law. Uh, and for two, there's a moral obligation on these bigger vessels to not fish inshore um, when we know how problematic it is. Now I was met with huge anger. Like it was, it was actually quite intimidating, the phone calls and the messages I was getting. Um, but you know, like I said, I think it's important to say what you think is right rather than what you feel is gonna get you a vote. And even, you know, since becoming a politician, these are the people I would have heard from the most in relation to the fisheries. And they, they, would, they would lead you to believe that they're the people, that they're the entire fishing community. And if you're not representing them, you're not representing your constituents and you're not going to get reelected. That is the message loud and clear. I thought, you know, I said, I'd rather not get reelected, to be honest, than go about doing something just for the sake of a vote. It's, that's what's wrong with politics. And anyway, got all of this abuse, like really full on. And then it transpired that actually about 90 plus percent of the fishing community wanted that law in place because 90 plus percent of them are those inshore fishing communities you know coastal and island families who've relied on this you know as they're living for forever um but you know in the past when they had you know when they made submissions for example to that that um public consultation 
for making a submission in favour of the banning of pair trolling, the bigger companies would, were refusing to sell them bait and things like that. So without actually realising, it turned out that I was representing the vast majority of the fishing community, but it would have been very easy if I was, you know, if my main focus was to be like keeping my votes, building up my votes, working on that, to have completely missed that point. Um, nobody would have been shouting then about the, the impact on the, the vast majority of the fishing fleet and the people who work in the industry and our ecosystems and our fish stocks, you know. So I think that's a really good example of how lobbying works. Like it can, it can really make you feel like you're upsetting people and nobody wants to do that, just like human nature and that you're, you know, indeed losing all of your support and you're going to lose your job. That's kind of my experience of, of how lobbying works and it's, it's really effective. And then you see, you know, like one of the things I've been working on a lot since I got elected, obviously, as soon as I got in, there was a global pandemic. And, you know, we had the first kind of lockdown and then, you know, quite quickly, it was like reviewing, revising and easing restrictions across society. So like hospitality, sports, all of these things which do have lobbies. And I'm not saying lobbies are bad. You know, oftentimes there's lobbies for really good causes. But all of those restrictions were kind of being reviewed and eased. And then there were situations like, for example, in maternity wards. So women were giving birth on their own. Like that's hard enough, um, you know, when everything goes well. But there was instances of people, you know, getting really bad news, really traumatic times and being on their own. Um, and like arguably, you know, most of the time the person going in with you is your partner. So they're already a close contact. It's not like a massive added risk. I and mean, then we hear about things like rapid testing you can do in an hour. You know, why, why not prioritize that for, for maternity wards? Um, I asked the Taoiseach about this. I asked the Minister for Health. I asked the Junior Minister for Health and I had a meeting with the Cork and Kerry Regional HSE group. I got a different answer from every single one of them. So the Taoiseach said this should, there should be a national approach to this. Um, the Minister for Health and Junior Minister for Health said it has to be like an individual on an individual hospital basis because it depends on space and different things like that. And the HSC management for the Cork and Kerry region said it has to be done on a regional basis. So needless to say, it hadn't been discussed. It hadn't been part of the conversation around COVID restrictions at all because everybody had a completely different idea of how this might work. How many months on? We're still in exactly the same position. So I keep following up, followed up with the Minister for Health this week same response which you know basically says nothing and like needless to say if you're about to give birth or you've just given birth you're not like organizing this organized lobby and like getting in touch with all your tds having zooms with eroctus members so oftentimes you know parts of society that are really important are just forgotten about because they don't have that lobby so there's kind of dysfunctional system there as well when when you think about it because the pressure and the things that come to the front of politicians' minds when they're going into the door, when they're putting into their in their parliamentary questions, are the things that you've been lobbied about. And you know that's an honest approach as well. It's I'm 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 speaking up for my communities, the things that have been told to me. Um, but you know, like that, another I think problem with, you know, we saw uh, was it a few weeks ago came out that there wasn't one woman at the the decision making table in terms of the the new COVID restrictions. Yeah. So like. And then we see, you know, nurses, student nurses and midwives aren't being paid. No review of uh, restrictions around maternity wards. Um, no increase in domestic violence refuge space. Um, all of these things. So it's a, it's a problematic system in general. And, and, like, and so much more extended from that in terms of like, you know, 
for example, this is one of the things I find really interesting as a new TD. So I would get like, you know, um, lots of correspondence and be like, will you put in a representation on behalf of me for something like a medical card, a house, um, a hospital waiting list, the list goes on. And I'm really struck by this because I'm like, okay, for one, does a rep from my office have an impact on who gets a house? So for one, there's two options here. If it does have an impact, there's something very fundamentally wrong with that. You shouldn't be more or less entitled to a house because you have a TD who will try and pull strings for you. And for two, if it doesn't have an impact, then why do all TDs spend so much time putting in reps for people? And the reality is, if that's the scenario, um, it's because when they do get the house that they're entitled to already and your rep had no impact, you can take the credit for it and let them know that, you know, this has worked and they go, I'm so grateful. I'm going to vote for that person forever because obviously it's a huge thing to, to get a house. But it's like, you know, and part of that as well is, is that the TD's offices end up sort of operating like a citizen's information. So you're like helping people navigate through a dysfunctional system. So it could just be helping them with their housing application and they'll still attribute that house to you then. But it's like what we should be working on is making the system functional, you know, because when you when you think about what an, a, a, a TD is supposed to do, you're supposed to be focusing on national legislation to, to make society better, not helping people to navigate dysfunctional systems, for example, within the Department of Housing. So the whole thing, in my opinion, is really, really problematic. And like, you know, as a state, we should probably be instead of letting TDs going back to their constituencies for as many days as possible to try and put in as many reps as possible for people, we should be trying to improve the system. You know, that, that's really our jobs. And what happens is like a lot of the other things then would be like in relation to roads, like potholes, different things like that. That is essentially the role of a councillor. But when you become a TD, I think you do have slightly more, I don't actually know, you know, but I think you have slightly more pull in terms of what pothole might be filled or whatever. So and it, a human reaction in order to try and, for one, for the people who voted you to feel like you're working for them, you're doing something for them, and you really meant what you said when you were campaigning, is like to get as much of that done as possible. So you become essentially a super counsellor, you know? And then it's not actually physically possible to be, you know, a super counsellor, um, a legislator, uh, you know, trying to do all of these things. So then you've got all of these public representatives focusing massively on local issues and not doing the jobs that they're actually elected to do. So that's also very problematic. And meanwhile, the... Sorry, it's a bit of an echo. Meanwhile, the councillors aren't doing... Well, it's not transparent exactly what's happening in the in the council's chambers and what, what, what y'all they're doing. So it, it just seems... It's broken. It's broken. Um, is there any chance that it can be overhauled? Do you, do you think it's fanciful to, for me to think that wouldn't it be great if we just had a load of, of Hollies in there uh, as TDs, just <laughs> being honest and trying to fix stuff? Like, it, you know, is that just kind of, you know, am I an ignorant little boy, uh, a slightly older boy, for thinking that that's the way, for wanting for that to be the way things are done? No, it's not, it's not at all. Like, obviously, we can't just be like, oh, well, we accept this dysfunctional system. That's the way it is. That's the way it's always been. And we'll just leave it there. Obviously, we have to work to change that. Um, and one of the things that really drew me to the Social Democrats was like, well, I would have finished school 
in 2008, you know, recession, there was an option of going to study, moving abroad, you know, um, all of that time with the banks and everything. I remember just such a huge disillusionment with Irish politics and genuinely felt like the word political party was almost like a dirty word. Like I just had such a bad impression of Irish politics and like just this constant talking about the past, like civil war politics, voting for your favourite civil war hero, essentially voting for your grandparents' future rather than your children's or whatever, this constant focus on the past. Um, And then, you know, when I was abroad for years, studying for years, things like that, came back, got involved in the social referendums. And that's kind of what, there was like this kind of moment of like, oh, knocking on doors, asking for votes is actually how you affect change. And that does work and that's democratic. So we're talking about how flawed the system is as well. It is democratic despite all of its flaws. Anybody can go for it and get elected. Somebody like me, who everybody said wouldn't have a chance. You know, you can do that and you can seek to change it. But in terms of picking, you know, when I realised that, that this, this can make a difference and you can, you know, the, the actual way to affect change then is to join a political party. If you can find one that you align with and try and build that to actually fundamentally change the way Irish politics works, because it is, I think, quite dated and I think it could be better. And one of, you know, one of the many things that drew me to Social Democrats is this policy of transparency, to have an independent watchdog for government, you know, to have things like that, streaming all things live, like transparency is just so important. When you look at that basically down to the a council level, you don't even get to, to, to read the documents that you vote on, you know. So like, of course, that can change. And I think we saw in the last election that people want to change and voted for change. Um, and I remember like after the election and, like for me personally, I was like, gutted, like another Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael government. And one of my party leaders saying to me, like, you don't realise how monumental a change this is, because I suppose in reality, when you look at the uh, Ireland on the whole, we've had a history of like Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael getting about 90% of the vote and one or other having a majority government. And now they can barely form a government between them. You know, they needed the Green Party and they seem to pretty much have the support of the, the regional and independent group as well. So like, change can feel really slow. And like, obviously it's a hundred years since the foundation of the state. And we have always had a vote between two political parties with a different favorite civil war hero, but that is wearing thin with general public. And I think Cork Southwest is a really good example of it. So I was like literally laughed at when I said I was going to the election. Everyone's like, you don't have a hope, but it's such an underestimation of people. And particularly in rural Ireland, they're like, oh, that's very rural conservative constituency. But just because we're from a rural area doesn't mean we can't want change, positive change, understand facts, see the dysfunction and want something different. So like my honest belief is that when people have an alternative to vote for something different, they will vote for it. Um, And, you know, it's just, I suppose, our job to to build on that. And I think we do need a new style of governance. We don't need to look to, to Sweden and Denmark and places and be like, oh, those Nordic countries have it all. Of course, we could have the same. We just... You know, the, the great thing about it is, is that we are in charge of how our country is run by virtue of who we elect to run it. You know, that is um, a big silver lining. So change is completely possible. And yes, it can feel very slow. But also when I think of this like a year and a half ago, um, I, had, I wasn't a public representative at all. So to go from zero to councillor to TD in that space of time. Um, in the local elections, we went from like zero to 19 councillors. We tripled our TDs in the general election. Um, as a very new party, um, 
change is, is so achievable and possible. It just requires like quite a lot of dedication, I suppose, and work. Um, but I think like Ireland's ready for it. You see with the greyhound racing is the perfect example of how Irish politics just does not keep up with Irish people, you know? Um, and I think people are sick of it and sick of voting for like that, their, their parish pump TD or whatever, because there's a kind of realisation that we can't keep voting for the same thing over and over again and expect something to change. It doesn't. We're met with the same kind of politics every time we elect the same kind of politics. So I'm very hopeful that things will change. Change is possible and it's already begun. And it is, I mean, I, I, it's something I keep banging on about. It's so unfortunate that we, we aligned ourselves so much with the Catholic Church from from day one, once we got our independence. And that was such, I mean, I mean, we look back now and we made such ter- like the people that you say that the war heroes, as you say, that we're still voting for, they made such bad decisions for us. And they did such terrible, like such terrible things happened to the people of Ireland off the back of that. And we're only now starting on, Jesus Christ, that was bad. This is bad. You know, it's, it's only dawning on us now. It's such a pity. We had such an opportunity and we really made... I mean, we made a bags of it. Like uh, it's saying we made a bags of it is, is putting it lightly, you know. And I think we're only sort of starting to come around to seeing how, how that change is possible with people like you. Um, so thank God for that. I won't get into the to your history with the church, um, but I but I will talk about how maybe young people can be a little bit. Um, can make decisions as young people that should be forgiven and forgotten. And, uh, you know, they should be allowed to make those mistakes as we all were. I wasn't allowed to make mistakes, but I'm an older man and uh, there wasn't cameras around and there wasn't, people weren't recording every moment, everything I did. And I want to talk particularly about this cache of photographs that I don't even know how uh, this works or so. So this is how I, this is my take on it. A girl might be coerced or, or otherwise into sharing a photograph of herself, nude, naked, semi-naked, whatever, in a compromising position, which would then be passed on to, by a trusting boyfriend, friend, whatever, passed on to somebody else, made available on a WhatsApp group. I don't really know. And sub, somebody has collected, or a group of men or whatever, have collected these photographs and then suddenly made them all available on this website. Um. What's your, what's your yeah, the, information on what, how this happened and, and, and why, why we need to make sure this is illegal for people to share these photographs? Yeah, I suppose it, like it's a digital age, isn't it? And, you know, it's very different, you know, even like for my age group, it's, it's not quite the same as it is for the younger generation in terms of how big a part of their lives, you know, digital technology is and their social life and their dating lives and everything. Um, so like, yeah, there was over 140,000 images. I'm not sure what the exact um, number was in the end, but um, many of them, like you say, perhaps coerced into, into doing it. Many of them uh, shared um, on a, a one person to another person private basis um, that were then uh, used to share more publicly without that person's consent. Um, I think lots of it was taken from paid sites and made public for free. Um, there was a big combination, but much of it as well was from um, from children. So it amounted to child pornography as well. A lot of time we're saying underage women, but essentially that's children and that is child pornography. So the problem was, I suppose, that, you know, where consent isn't present, the law needs to step in. So 
if you shared an image with me, that is a, a private sharing, and I should only be able to share that further if you have consented to that. And it shouldn't be left up to you to prove that you didn't consent. It should be me having to prove that you did consent. You know, that the law shouldn't be stacked up in favour um, of the person committing the crime. The law should be stacked up in favour of the victim, or at least equally. But proving consent is important. We didn't have laws in place. So there was nothing to protect these women from their images being shared publicly all over the internet, um, images they had never consented to being shared. Um, and that's oftentimes career ruining, life ruining, um, you know, results in, in suicides, it's defaming, it's, you know, really, really severe. And this was like an organized plan. So even within the search of it, which search, for example, killed their women. You know, it was like very much so you could find an individual targeted and use these images against them. Really problematic. So, yeah, obviously, of something I was very vocal on that where consent is in present, the law has to step in and protect these women. Um, and initially, like the Minister of Justice was saying, well, in the next year, we plan to put this legislation through saying I don't the next year is not good enough it should be in place already like the trauma and suffering that people experience with the fear is enough not to mention you know further repercussions down the line the mental health impacts you know are, are quite staggering um but since they they have agreed to to accelerate it very very quickly um and they've accepted good amendments in terms of making it you know um really protect the victims, I suppose, in this situation. So it is being accelerated and it will be addressed now. And it's, it, it's a shame and a, yeah, it's shameful that it wasn't in place already to protect these people, but so, at least it is happening now. So what can we say loud and clearly to men who decide to share images that aren't theirs to share, that they, that they could be prosecuted, they will be prosecuted in the near yes, future? Up to, yeah, up to a seven year jail sentence, rightly so. So. Yeah. And I think that will change this very, very quickly, you know, from it being completely, you know, allowed and OK. And actually, if the women who were victims of this um, tried to, to, you know, address the situation, they could be criminalised for defaming the, the men. Um, so it was really um, it was really backwards. Um, and, and now that's changed. And obviously it's going to be a huge deterrent. It's a bit like, you know, when speed cameras came in. People stop speeding when they're worried that there's going to be a repercussion for it. So um, I'm very glad to see that legislation go through. Yeah, it's it's very good. It's excellent. And fair play to you and your work on it and, you know, making it so public. And I think that if we can say it to lads and the problem is that the bulk of these lads are just kind of like, I'm not going to say innocent bystanders. They're they're too afraid to say, no, no, this isn't right. This is wrong, lads. And for those lads, for the for the bulk of men young boys involved in this to say to them well this could be a prison sentence for you that will put a stop to it i mean look you can't there's always going to be you know people who just don't think like you don't have the the moral whatever to 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 think correctly and that's you know we can't ever really deal with that completely but just to know that you know to be able to say to lads if you send you know if you send something to me i can go to prison and you can go to prison and it's a very clear thing then, isn't it? Yeah, and we also need lads to like really take it upon themselves to to address it. Like in, in WhatsApp groups, I think is a really important one. This is where it, it crops up a lot. 
Um, and you know, you hear men oftentimes seeing things in WhatsApp groups, not feeling comfortable with it necessarily, but not saying anything either because it's not keeping with the culture of it or, you know. Um, so really important as well um, for, for men and women to just call it out. Like it, it is our responsibility as a society to end this slow because it's a societal problem. And like, you know, we talk about the, the separation of church and state briefly there earlier. Having, you know, most of our schools run by a religious organization means that there's just no sex education, really. You know, you might have like a brief bit in home ec in secondary school or something, but we have no, nobody is equipped properly, you know, to deal with these situations. And like, we need to change our education, education systems in that way as well. We need to learn about consent from a very young age. Um, but also like we have a responsibility as individuals in a society that has a problem to learn about it ourselves and to do our best, you know, to try and change it because we can change the laws and all of those things really do help. Like, you know, I think a good example of how a law can impact on the culture and society as well as like how we see women treated in relation to rape trials. So they're often kind of vilified and treated like they're on trial and trialed by media and, you know, about 1% of victims um, of rape get justice. So essentially we have a society that tells women who are raped to not come forward. You'll be vilified, you'll be trialed yourself um, and you probably won't win. Um, so like changing the laws is really important in terms of changing the culture, but they need, they need to happen together as well. So we need to stop as a society vilifying victims, you know, and we've, it, it, we have such a history of it and a culture of it down to the mother and baby homes. You know, thousands and thousands of women incarcerated, so treated like criminals, vilified um, and incarcerated and, um, you know, with, with lots of guilt and shame as well. And we, we still see that play out in Ireland in different ways, like the situations we're just talking about there. It's still so apparent. Um, and like I said, the laws have to be changed. Our education system has to change, but all of us as well need to to check ourselves and and really call it out when we see it because um, it's a it's an indictment on us. You know, Ireland's so uh, amazing. I think most of us are so proud to be Irish in so many ways, but that's one of those things that you know we really fall down on. And it's very important that we have this stuff that we that we we have this stuff reflected back on us because it's very easy to look at a country like. India or you know in the community and something terrible happening to a woman over there or a Muslim country or you know and it's very easy to go oh geez that's terrible and but when you actually see when you see the reality of how we treat women in this country as second class citizens and we have done like we really need to be honest about this and we really need to talk about it and this is where all of this honesty in, in politics is so important now uh, it's it's you know we're not we don't want to and that's where you get the anger I presume it's probably from men saying ah now we're not all that bad you know <laughs> or or whatever we need to say it because we just don't want to look at the facts of how we are and how we've treated women yeah um, even even recently in the doll I raised the issue with Leo Varadkar of the gender pay gap and like we just have to be realistic about this it, you know it's the centenary of women getting the vote was 100 years ago when my grandmother got married she had to give up her job and her pps number became her husband so did her name like we can't just ignore the fact that women have been oppressed and we're still you know as a society coming out of that and we couldn't vote 100 years ago there's still a gen gender pay gap now and i addressed it with leah radcar in the chamber on the day 
that marked the day that women would work for free for the rest of the year because of the gender pay gap. And he made a really good point. He was like, yeah, like, I don't know why um, guards are paid more than nurses, but I suppose it's just that kind of old model of, you know, the man's job being the, the, the breadwinning job and, and the woman's not. I was like, right, okay, but like they're state jobs, you know, paid by the state. So we can address that. And like everybody, I think, acknowledges that the job of being a nurse, huge responsibility, people's lives in your hands, um, you know, the long hours, the study, the education, the dedication, huge. And it shouldn't be less valued than being a guard. And then, so they're like, oh, I wonder why, like an acknowledgement and the confused look on their face. But like, and then we go into the door this week and vote to not pay student nurses and midwives during a pandemic who we literally wouldn't have survived without. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's kind of like, like we need to actually make a concerted effort to not just get it and acknowledge those ridiculous aspects of how we run the country to actually just change it then yeah. like you know we've been waiting a hundred years since the foundation of the state really for better equality it's still like you I, know I, so I, many I, things that could be done and i don't want to lay it all on the greens door because you know they're they're part of government and sophie and gail and sophie and fall they're all responsible but it's just so disheartening when you see not one not two not three you know surely a group of five people could get together and vote the other way and make a statement and, and say, no, 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 the student nurses need to get paid. Uh, surely, you know, in this day and age, like it's got yeah. to be having conversations outside the door before they go in. There's got to be somebody saying, seriously, like the Green Party have to be saying, lads, we can't continue to just toe the line here. This is not us. Like It must be, yeah. I, must, it's so hard to imagine. Going on. <laughs> and then they're yeah, just, I, no, no, it's, too much, it's more hassle. Like going back to the county council and going, well, you know, you mightn't have a job next year if you don't vote. Like what? It's bizarre. That's it. it. It's so hard. It's so hard to make sense of. And, you know, like that, you know, that a lot of I think the Green Party TDs got into politics to do the right thing. Genuinely, like good people, good people, um, good, people good relief systems. Um, and like, you know, and you see it then that, that someone becomes a minister and they come out with this script. And I do just think like, Obviously, you, you know, arrive into and it says some some of them are brand new TDs as well. So it'd be the equivalent of me going in and now being the minister for something, which like in reality, you don't know what's going on in that department. You don't understand how it runs. And that's, you know, everyone can everyone would be, you know, can say, I understand, you know, you're not a superhuman or whatever. But like, for example, in the instance of the, the mother and baby homes records, I can't understand how at that point when you're, you know, passing legislation without pre-legislative scrutiny, rushing it through unnecessarily, giving out false information about advice from the Attorney General and the Data Protection Commission, whatever about your department leading and guiding you because you're a new minister. At that point, when that much is going on and all of the survivors who should be prioritised above anything in this situation are saying, we don't want this. Why, you know, and the trauma, like the, the compounds the most severe kind of trauma that people have already experienced. How as a minister do you not go, actually no, and you can't make me? You know, like at the end of the day, you know, go at the very least, we're going to allow this to go through the proper passages of the houses, like all legislation should and could, this could have gone through the proper passages. At the very least, I'm going to put my foot down and say, I'm not rushing it through and I'm not defending, you know, what is obviously the department's plan. <laughs> Because I don't think that a brand new minister had made that plan. It's not the minister um, 
for children's faults that that happened. But surely you can step up at a certain point and say, well, actually, no, I'm not comfortable with this and I'm not doing it. I'm not going out with that script. You know, it comes back then to being allowing yourself to be vulnerable in that situation like you did when you went into the the council meeting someone handed you a big wad of paper and you said I can't fall on this I I don't have enough information I haven't read this yet give me time and you look for time and you we need more of our politicians to be honest and vulnerable and allow themselves to say lads I actually don't know what's going on here so I need time that's what we want to hear that's what I wanted to hear from that from from I won't name name that's what I yeah. wanted to hear and I everyone would, honesty I, I would have loved the Green Party if they said hang on I don't actually know what's going on here I haven't looked into this properly I've just got this just seems ludicrous or whatever just give me time here lovely everyone's happy. exactly everyone's human and everyone understands that everyone else is and to say I don't have a, a full grasp on this department yet because I'm first time TD and now I'm minister <laughs> would be like okay can you do this though? Yes, I'll try that. Yes, yeah, yeah. great, wonderful. Listen, uh, thanks so much for your time. I, I, I probably kept you for longer than than you expected, but I really enjoy talking to you. And best of luck with everything. And I just love your honesty and uh, everything you've done. And, and keep keep on keeping on and and keep doing what you're doing. And I hope you don't get too much hate. I just I, 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 look, you seem to have thick skin. So, uh, yeah, but I, you know, I, I hope the men of Ireland are cop themselves on at some stage and some women um thank you so much keith thanks a lot and uh, i wanted to ask you a lot more about your personal life but uh, i just run out of time so <laughs> it's not that interesting <laughs> holly thanks a million thank you have a good day there you go thank you very much to holly kearns uh, for agreeing to be on the podcast and for being so uh, brilliant um just just because she's just not afraid and doesn't toll the line and doesn't do what she's told. And uh, just not out of any boldness or uh, sense of being a rebel, just because she's honest and curious and wants to make things better. And that's what we need from all of our politicians. And I'm not even, like, I'm not just a, a member of the Social Democratic Party, or I don't even know how to say that properly. The Sock Dems, not even a member, not affiliated with any uh, political party, but she would convince me uh, just to, you know, just to get involved even. Um, so thank you very much, Holly. Keep up the good work. And uh, yeah, that's it. Um, I recorded the intro and had intended to get the podcast up a bit earlier but um, things went against me I actually had to uh, record another interview um, Charlie what's going on over there get out get out Charlie get out of there Charlie's trying to eat something that he shouldn't be eating Christmas decorations I think why are you trying to eat Christmas decorations Charlie Charlie anyway um, things conspired against me I had to do another interview and then Finn the young lad needed his haircut, so he managed to get out and get a haircut, and now I'm only back at, um, it's now about quarter to eight, and I'm going to get this recorded and get it up, so I can say that I got it up, no, that sounds wrong, so I can say that I got the podcast up and out and broadcast and published uh, by Friday, as I said I would. Anyway, that's it, uh, mind how you go, uh, please 
tell your friends about the podcast, uh, listen back to the other episodes, like, subscribe, um, email me, keithwalchpod at gmail.com. And if there's anyone you'd like to hear on the podcast, you can send me your thoughts, recommendations, who you'd like to hear me talking to. That would be great. Um, and that's it. Mind yourself. Mind how you go. Be good. Be honest. Allow yourself to be vulnerable. Allow yourself to put your hand up and say, I don't know what's going on here. And, uh, you know, take your time to find out what's going on. And then make your decision, especially if you're a member of the DAW, a TD, you know. Anyway, thanks very much. And once again, thanks to Holly. Good luck. Charlie, get out of there. Charlie, come back. Charlie, I'm warning you. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.